Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It is our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now here's today's message with Pastor Michael. Father, as we now turn to 1 Samuel and, and study this incredible book, there is so much for us to learn and in the chapters ahead of us, Lord, we know that you're going to give us insight and application into who you are, who we are in Christ, and and what we're to be doing in this time that we have on the planet. And the time is not long. You know, we just heard about the 12 journalists that were shot and killed, and uh, just sad, Lord. And we know that our world is an uncertain place, and but we know that ultimately it is our faith that will help us to navigate this time and and how we're to live our lives. And so we just pray that we'll be able to right now turn our hearts to you. We will have a heart like Hannah, a heart of a favored one, knowing that your grace does abound upon us no matter what we're going through tonight. We'll have an attitude of prayer. We'll have an attitude of seeking the Lord in our particular circumstance, Lord. And Father, as we come before you, we always want to do it with reverence and awe. And we always want to ask, Lord, that you would bless and lead this Bible study. We lay it at your feet and pray that your will would be done tonight in your church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the book of 1 Samuel. So you want to find the first five books and you're going to then go to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you'll get to 1 Samuel. So that is the book that we're going to be looking at tonight. 1 Samuel dates about... 1050 BC. And if you want a major theme about 1 Samuel, it is a book about leadership. It is God searching for a man or a woman after what? His own heart. And as you look at the book of 1 Samuel, what emerges is three major leaders. Samuel, who is the kingmaker, he's the anointer of kings. He will become the leader of the nation. He will eventually anoint Saul. Saul looks like the right guy, he's tall and handsome, he's impressive, but he falls on his face because he really does not trust in God. And then that will lead us to the man after God's own heart, and the man is named David. And he will emerge on the scene in 1 Samuel 16. Saul will come on the scene in 1 Samuel 9. And of course Samuel and his birth is the beginning of the story. That's why the book is called 1 Samuel because the story does center itself around Samuel. Now sometimes when people study Old Testament books, some of you are not very familiar with the Old Testament, and frankly, for some of you, it's a little bit intimidating. Uh, You know, you may be very familiar with many New Testament books, but you may have never really gotten into some deep study of the Old Testament. If you've been here for a while, you certainly have, because we've gone through Isaiah, which was 66 chapters, and Hosea, which is now airing on our radio program, by the way. And it's been awesome to see what God is doing with the book of Hosea. But tonight, as we look at 1 Samuel, I want to remind you of a verse. This is in 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to read 11 through 13. Just note it for your notes. Now, these things happened to them, to Israel, as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, 
But with the temptation, do you remember? He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear up under it, is the language, that you may be able to endure it. That verse is said in the context of Israel's example. They fell on their face. They were wooed to idolatry. They had the very blessing of God, the presence of God, the choice of God, and yet they failed many, many times. There had been, in the history of the book of 1 Samuel, about 200 years of social upheaval, verging at times on anarchy. If you recall, the book of Joshua ends with Joshua leading the people into the promised land, and then we have the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is kind of the immediate background of 1 Samuel. So if you just flip back, past Ruth, and go back to the end of Judges, you'll see what the world was like. And this is going to connect with the monarchy that will emerge in 1 Samuel, that is, the kings. It says in the last verse of Judges, Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every done, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, many Bible teachers have quoted Judges 21-25, and it says it earlier in the book of Judges, as a description of modern society. And I, I suppose that any one of us could say at different times in history, Judges 21-25 applies. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And that, what that ultimately does is it brings a chaotic culture. A culture that loses sight of God eventually loses sight of the truth. And when a culture loses sight of the truth, everybody goes the way that they want to go. Truth becomes relative. God is demoted. Man is elevated. And you have a culture in chaos. And I don't have to tell you that that's where we are in America tonight. But not only are we there in America, we are there in the world. People have lost their moral compass. We see it happening in Europe. We see it happening in many cultures and civilizations where no longer do we even know where the compass points us. We're, we're a lost generation in many ways. But that is where the hope of the gospel comes, and that's where 1 Samuel brings light. Because through a rural, unknown woman named Hannah, and her name means grace, God is doing something. And he's going to do something through her barrenness. She is childless, and that is a terrible situation for a woman in Israel. She wants to, to be able to provide an heir to her husband. And her barrenness becomes a picture of Israel in, in this particular time with the backdrop of judges. But her barrenness becomes a picture of any culture that is without God. It is barren, without his truth, without his light. And so this is where she finds herself. She finds herself not being able to provide an heir to her husband. And it's a tough time. But from the tough time, from the barrenness, from the chaos, God is working. And whenever we feel barrenness and chaos in our own lives, we can maybe begin to see that God may be trying to get a message to you. That the barrenness or even the chaotic situation may be a preview of that God is about to work. Or it may be God saying to you, if you are sensing barrenness in your life tonight, I want you to turn back to me. That is where the fullness is going to come. Think of the, the opposite of barrenness is what? It's a full life. 
It, it's fullness of joy. And so many of us, you know, when we became Christians, that's what we experienced, right? We went from emptiness to fullness. But oftentimes as believers, even though we've experienced that, we can sometimes still pay our ticket price to go back to barrenness. Well, maybe I'll try barrenness again. Maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's not as bad as I remember. So what do we do? We go back to barrenness and we find it's as bad as we remembered. Actually, it's even worse. Because as a believer, whenever we try to do life without God, it's ultimately emptiness. And it's worse when you have the Holy Spirit in you because you know he's going to be convicting you. Now, 1 Samuel uh, opens up with the word now. So if you'd follow along with me, verse 1, 1 Samuel 1. Now there was a certain man, so the characters will be introduced from Ramathaim Zophim. And this is actually Rama. You'll see that in verse 19. So you could just write Rama, R-A-M-A-H for short in verse 19. From the hill country of Ephraim, his name was El Kanah. Now, I taught you a little Hebrew in the last several weeks, and we've gone over Hebrew words. And whenever you see El, that's the name of God, and then Kanah would be the ending. So his name means something like this. God is owner, or God has created. El Kanah. This is the man. He's the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu. And whenever you see introductions to characters in the Bible, their main uh, connection in terms of their identity is always to a genealogical record. So when you hear people introduced in the Bible, they're introduced this way so you can know their background. You can know what tribe they belong to. You can know their ancestors. And so Elkanah is described in this way. He's the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Some scholars believe that Zuf is actually an Ephrathite which would land him in the area of Bethlehem. And if that's true, then that will connect us to Micah 5.2 and Bethlehem Aphratha, which is the prophecy of the coming Messiah and where he would be born. That's one alternative reading to the idea of an Ephraimite. So he comes from Ramathame. It's literally the place of two hills or two heights are associated with it. And he may have this connection to uh, being of Bethlehem or Bethlehemite stock. He's from a place called Rama, which means height. Not much is known about it, but I mentioned the hills of Ephraim, the connection there. Uh, it was Eusebius, an ancient uh, church father, who connected this location to Arimathea. Uh, just outside the area of Jerusalem. And you remember there's a famous man in the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea. He's the one that goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus and does that brave thing. So Elkanah could be God has created or God is sovereign or owner. And this is you know, a great uh, entry into the story, verse 2. Now he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah or Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Now, Penina means pearl or jewel in Hebrew. At least that's what scholars say. I personally believe Penina means pain. And you'll see why. She was a troubler, man. She was a thorn in Hannah's side. And so these are the two women. I want you to notice that Hannah is listed first. And she is listed first because scholars believe that Hannah was the original wife 
of Elkanah. The reason that he probably had a second wife was because of Hannah's barrenness. So before we come to a quick conclusion that you know Elkanah was a bad dude and he was breaking the laws of God and he forgot about Genesis 2.24, uh, husband shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, singular. In 1 Timothy 3.2 it says, an elder should be the husband of one wife. Kings were warned not to take multiple wives to themselves. But in this culture, something did happen and it appeared to be an acceptable practice because it was so important that a man had an heir, a male heir, because literally his house would die without an heir. His, his name could not be carried on without a, a male heir or a male son. And so what they would do is if they uh, believed that the woman was barren and she could not produce children, a second wife would be brought into the picture. The second wife would then hopefully be able to produce offspring for the man. And Hannah is in the picture Her name means grace or favored, but she certainly doesn't feel like a favored woman right now. Her her name does mean grace, but she certainly is not feeling like she's living in grace. Now, uh, this two-wife thing, I want to take you back to a a story in Genesis 16. I know you're familiar with it, but go there for a second. This is the story of Abram and Sarai before their names are changed. And um, Sarai is barren, Genesis 16. And so uh, there's some time has passed. A promise has been given of an heir that will come from Abraham's body. Uh, Abraham does believe God, but apparently time has gone by and they're trying to help out God. And Genesis 16.3 says, And after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, would you notice? As his wife. So she became another wife to Abram. And he went into Hagar, Genesis 16, 4, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. NIV says she began to despise her mistress. That is, she began to trouble Sarai. And Sarai said to Abram, now see if this sounds familiar to any of you. May the wrong done me be upon you. If you have the NIV, it says, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. If you want modern English, this is your fault, Abram. Now, if I have read this correctly, I thought that Sarai put this in the suggestion box. (laughs) And she said, hey, this is what I'd like you to do. And it was done for the express purpose of trying to produce an heir or an offspring. And so she gets pregnant, but all of a sudden, Sarai is not too happy about the way events have unfolded. And so she says, this is all your fault. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Some of you can say, I've had conversations like this very recently with people close to me. If you have, we have counseling set up all during the week. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your maid is in your power due to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai She paid it back. She treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. Back to 1 Samuel. Now, whenever there are two wives in the house, I would just say, (laughs) with all the humility and caution I can get out at the moment, bad 
idea. Bad idea. Why? Because you can see the built-in tension that's going to be there, the, the potential for all the, the back and forth and hard feelings and harshness that would go on. Now, we return for a moment to Elkanah, and we do see that he's a godly man. Now, this man that is Elkanah, this is 1 Samuel 1, and we have picked it up now at verse 3, after we hear about uh, the two women and that Hannah had no children. Now, this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. So the, this man now is a worshiper, and he is going to go up to a site that's described in 1 Samuel 2.22 as the Tent of Meeting. But it's not in Jerusalem at this time. It is set up in a site called Shiloh. In Deuteronomy 16.16, it says, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the Feast of Matzah, which is Passover, the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, which is Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot, which is Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. We do not know which feast um, Elkanah was going up to, but he did this annually, and it's possible that it was Passover, because it seems like in Jewish tradition, as uh, time went by, if you could not make the other two feasts, and you had a choice to go once a year, you would make Passover that special time that you would go. Even Jesus' family visited Jerusalem at the Passover. What is this place called Shiloh? Shiloh was located about 15 miles north of Elkanah's town of Ramah. The modern site is called Kerbet Selun. It is situated about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. So you just take Jerusalem on your map, you go north, and you're going to find Shiloh. Shiloh was destroyed in the 11th century B.C., and that is mentioned in Jeremiah 7, 12 through 14. God mentioned Shiloh in Psalm 78, 60, when he says, So that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he pitched among men. And there's a few references in the book of Judges to Shiloh. Let's go there. Just remember, Judges is just a few pages behind 1 Samuel. It's the backdrop of the book. So let's see what Shiloh is, uh, what it says about Shiloh in, Josh, excuse me, in uh, Judges. Go to Judges 21. Excuse me, Judges 21. I said 18, but 21, 19. Judges 21, 19. So they said, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel. On the east side, Judges 21.19, of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, on the south side of Lobona. And they commanded the sons of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in wait in the vineyards, and watch, Judges 21.21. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards And each of you shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. Uh, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh. This This was the location of the tent of meeting. So it seems like what happened is this. In the days of Joshua, and I just read Joshua 18 verse 1, they set up the tent of meeting, which was a 
uh, movable tent. Do you remember when uh, under Moses and then under Joshua, the tent could be moved to different locales? It was a temporary dwelling. They would set it up. And so they set it up at Shiloh. And there was an annual feast, you'll notice in Judges 21-21. It happened annually, and it included dancing and festivals. And Israel did know how to celebrate. And their festivals were often to be times of joyous occasions. What were some of the festivals about? Go back to 1 Samuel 1. They were often about the harvest. And so when the harvest came in, what did you do? You celebrated. You had a party. People would, would dance, and they would enjoy the, the fruits of their labor. The, the harvest had come in and it was a time of rejoicing. And when the day, this is 1 Samuel 1.4, came that Elkanah sacrificed, so he'd gone up to offer to the Lord. He would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. Obviously, Penina has been a baby machine because she's got a big family and multiple children. Now, when they would offer sacrifices in Old Testament times, and even in the New Testament, what they would do is, once the sacrifice was offered, they would enjoy that sacrifice as a meal. So a portion would go to the Lord, a portion would go to the priests, and then they would, they would actually enjoy something like a barbecue. So they would, they would sacrifice to the Lord, and then portions would be handed out. So obviously a large portion was given to Penina, and then to Hannah, he would give a double portion, verse 5, for what's the Bible say? He loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Now, the author gives us an insight that Hannah's barrenness, her inability to bear children, is not an accident of nature. The Lord is responsible. The Lord has closed her womb. Now, a woman with a name like Grace, her name means grace, she would have to be thinking, now, why would the Lord close my womb? What would be the purpose of a season of barrenness in, in an area that is so important to a woman in Israel? Well, Elkanah, trying to express love to her and knowing that her heart was hurting, gave her a double portion. She certainly didn't need it. There was no one else to feed but her. Why the double portion? Well, because Elkanah was trying to compensate for her hurting heart. But the, the Bible tells us what's going on. The Lord has closed her womb, and her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her. Some of you are going to really highlight these words. Because the Lord had closed her womb. The NIV says, because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And one commentary says, renders it this way, her tormentor, used to provoke her severely with the result that she would aggravate her, close quote. And so Panina took full advantage of the situation. And they would go year by year, they would go to this religious festival, they were going to honor the Lord for all the blessings that he had given. And Panina would do something like this. I don't even know why you're here, Hannah. What do you have the Lord to thank the Lord for? You're barren, there's no blessing on your life. Look at my family. She got 10 kids running around. You know what? Maybe like uh, Job's wife, just curse God and die. Thanks, honey. Right? I mean, and, and it says in verse 7, this happened year 
after a year, it seemed like she would turn up the heat at the actual time of the festival. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, it's called a temple in chapter 3, verse 3, Panina would provoke her, so she wept, and she said, don't even bother giving me any food, Elkanah. I'm not hungry. And she wept, and her heart was hurting, and she was getting abused by a woman whose name is supposed to be Pearl, but I told you it probably means pain. That's my own interpretation. If you would like to listen to this message, or if you would like more information about the ministry of Living Truth, please visit our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. Each time we enter a new book of the Bible, it's exciting to see how the Word of God speaks to our times. 1 Samuel is a book about leadership. And of course, leadership is on a lot of our minds lately because we look at our country and we look at the church in the country and we certainly know that we need all the help we can get. You know, in 1 Samuel, one of the interesting things about the country paralleling Hannah's situation is that the country was barren for leadership. And that lack of leadership brought instability to the nation. In fact, People were just doing what was right in their own eyes because they lacked leadership. Leadership is an extremely important thing. And of course, you know, as Hannah experiences this barrenness, this season of barrenness, from her barrenness in the Lord's time comes a Samuel. And Samuel becomes the prophet to the nation. Of course, Samuel is used by God. First, you know, Saul comes on the scene His name literally means asked for. The people got what they asked for. Tall, dark, and handsome, but not really, you know, not really sensitive to the ways of the Lord. But then a man came that was also anointed by this prophet, and that man was a man after God's own heart. And, you know, the situation with Hannah, the situation with Samuel is a reminder that 1 Samuel is a book about God. It, you know, it's, it's a book about God's plan and God's favor and God's ultimate sovereignty. And Hannah's situation is directly related to a New Testament character that we meet early in the New Testament, and her name is Mary. And Mary's living at a time when, of course, Israel, again, is barren for leadership. And there's been 400 years of silence in Israel, no prophet, No prophetic voice has really spoken to the nation. And Mary becomes the vehicle by which the Messiah comes, the ultimate leader, the greater David. And once again, the Bible weaves together this beautiful tapestry that even in seasons of barrenness, even when year in and year out we're being mocked by maybe a difficult person in our lives, God is still working and he's faithful. And that is the promise not only that we see in the scripture, but that's the promise for God's people as well, that he's always working. Even when we can't see it, he works all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So my brother, my sister, my friend, if you're listening right now, and if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can know that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. 